Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, and welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we take irreverent dives into lesser-known stories about the early American presidents and founders. And of course, these are stories, like always, that I'm not privy to ahead of time. And I know this one is a doozy. And I hear there's a lot of intertwangled, twisted plots. My what twangled webs we weave. (laughs) Twangled webs. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jessica Dory. And this week, we're going to look at the wildlife and personality of Governor Morris. I don't know who that is. Governor? Yeah, last week, I pronounced it Governor. Governor, but historians are pretty sure it's Governor. Why are why why all these weird pronunciations of Governor? It's from his mother's maiden name. It's not a title. Oh, it's like Judge Reinhold. Okay. <laughs> yeah, not not a real judge. Okay. Uh, we're going to be digging into Governor and his pretty remarkable wife, Anne Carrie Randolph Morris, or Nancy, as she was known. Love remarkable wives. I can relate to them, you know. <laughs> mm, I see. I see. From reading and stuff. <laughs> It's a story of the power of words and a positive attitude and the danger of nasty relatives with plenty of scandal, tragedy, romance, and four severe bodily injuries. Oh. In case you want to keep track along the way. I'll try to keep track. Let's start with part one, constitutions. Oh. One of the things that I like most about Governor Morris is his personality. Mm-hmm. He had, Are we really going to call him Governor Morris the whole time? Like, can we... Yeah, we're going to respect his memory by... Calling him by his name? Yeah. (laughs) Is that too much to ask? I don't know. I'm really put off when you say governor. You'll get used to it. It'll roll off your tongue. And so then like the next few words are all muted because I'm just focusing on governor and it's a little hard for me. Well... I'm I'm the victim in this situation. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Governor. Governor. Govy. Governor. (laughs) See, this is what I'm saying. Can we call him Govy? That would be less distracting. Sometimes we'll call him Govy. He had what biographer Richard Brookheiser called a relaxed confidence. Hmm. That's something we can strive for. Right? I think that's the exact opposite of the kind of confidence that John Adams had, which was like an anxious, agitated confidence. Adams's version was almost like defensive, like an insecure screaming of, I'm right. God gave me stubbornness to know when I'm right. And that's always. <laughs> Governor Morris didn't need to do that. He had what in modern terms is called big dick energy. Ew. I didn't make it up. I've never heard that. I think you found it just to put it in here. I did not find it. It's a it's a huge thing. No, that's not a thing. It's a thing. Like, I don't believe you. <laughs> we'll do some Googling after this. I'm not going to Google. <laughs> <laughs> he was happy-go-lucky, and he said he had naturally a taste for pleasure. His philosophy was that the incidents of pleasure and pain are scattered more equally than is generally imagined. The cards are dealt with fairness. What remains is patiently to play the game and then to sleep. Mm. So the game of life and then rest. Yeah. Even though life kept throwing really painful curveballs at him, he still liked to look on the bright side. He thought life was beautiful, but he knew that people could be terrible. Mm. 
He was wary of mobs and mob mentality, and he thought that there would always be an aristocracy. It was just part of life. But it was important to keep them in check. And he ought to know because he was about as aristocratic as you could get. Hmm. He was born in 1752 at his family's huge estate of Morrisania in what is now part of New York City in the Bronx. He came from a long line of powerful men, and he had three older brothers, but his father thought they were all pretty lame and that Governor was the real hope of the family. Oh. Yeah. I, too, have three older brothers, and yeah, maybe, I was that's, say. <laughs> maybe that's <laughs> the only reason I included that little tidbit, <laughs> because it resonated. I don't know. <laughs> he had a great head for math and for understanding people. Those things don't always go together, but they did with him. Hmm. When he was 14 years old and home from college on a break, he suffered the first severe bodily injury that we're going to encounter uh, today. Number one. He accidentally knocked over a kettle of boiling water on his right arm and side. Ouch. A family friend wrote that Governor had borne the torture with a fortitude that would have done honor to an Indian brave. So it's a positive stereotype, yeah. I guess. We don't know exactly how severe the injury was, but years later, a colleague described the arm as having all the flesh taken off. Oh, that sounds like, you know, a severe one. Yeah, it's it's no joke. Oh, poor Govey. Yeah. The injury might have kept him from serving in the military, and he instead served in New York's Provincial Congress. There, he and his buddy John Jay got to take a crack at writing a constitution for the state of New York when he was just 24 years old. Doesn't it make you feel like you haven't accomplished anything when you hear these youngins busting out constitutions? Yeah. Like, I, that was not what I was busting out at that age. <laughs> I'm scared to ask, but <laughs> what were you busting out at that age? Sonnets? He fought successfully. <laughs> Sonnets. <laughs> Tell me you were busting out at that age. Haikus. <laughs> he fought successfully for religious freedom in that constitution, and he tried to get an anti-slavery statement in there. Oh, good for Gavi. Yeah, but it failed on a vote of 31 to 5. Oh, that's really uh, yeah unfortunate. It's nice to know that he was on the right side of history, even though he was in the minority. When he was just 25, he was named to the Continental Congress, moving up from just the state level to the whole country right at its birth. At six foot four, Governor was called the tall boy. <laughs> wow. The other congressmen thought he was whimsical. A whimsical tall boy. A whimsical tall boy, which sounds like a drink. Yeah, that sounds delicious. <laughs> His, I think you have to be whimsical if you're that tall, or else you... It probably like, helps, or else you're too scary, right? Yeah, you're or too else you might be a little bit too scary. Yeah. His first real assignment in Congress was to visit George Washington at Valley Forge and to report on the condition of the army. This was a big first assignment. It's like Clary Starling and the Silence of the Lambs going <laughs> to visit Hannibal Lecter. And the stakes were high, too, because it wasn't a sure thing that George Washington was even going to keep his job. Uh, Morris and Washington became good friends. George. That's nice. Yeah. Well, Washington was probably excited to meet someone taller than himself. Maybe. <laughs> you you think that's like cool? You think that's like I don't, I'm pretty short. Sure when I meet people shorter than me, sometimes I'm it's it, I don't know how to handle it. <laughs> well, <laughs> probably because it's such a rare occurrence. Wow. But wow. Uh, yeah, maybe Washington was like finally someone of my stature. Could be. I um, can look up to. Speaking of their stature, their similar stature comes into play a little later. Really? Mm -hmm. I always um, ruin things, don't I? <laughs> no, no. It's foreshadowing. Governor reported truthfully about the terrible conditions of the army with vivid language saying, 
The skeleton of an army presents itself to our eyes in a naked, starving condition, out of health, out of spirits. He was a huge champion of Washington's and of getting the army what they needed. His mathematical, organizational brain helped him fix the conditions of Valley Forge as much as they could with a pretty useless Congress. When Governor Morris was 28, he suffered another injury, the second that we'll talk about today, even worse than what happened to his arm. Gosh. He was either getting onto a carriage or driving in it when he was thrown out and his left leg got caught in the spokes of the wheel. Oh, that sounds horrible. Several of his bones were broken and his ankle was dislocated. His personal doctor was out of town. Of course he was. And the doctor... They always are. Yeah. The doctors who attended him said that his leg needed to be amputated. And he said, let's do it. He had his whimsy even then. Yeah. When his doctor returned, um, he said, "Uh, I think the leg could have been saved. Oh, you know what? At that point, keep it to yourself, Doc. (laughs) Like, Yeah. I can't imagine taking that kind of news well, but Morris just seemed to roll with it. Maybe he rolled with it in front of people and then he was like crying into his pillow at night. I don't know. I, I think from everything, it seems like he really did just have this kind of happy-go-lucky attitude with things. Mm-hmm. He reminds me of the Tiger King employee who had part of his arm amputated. Oh, yeah. She was awesome. Yeah. She identifies as a he, by the way, now. Oh. Yeah. Or who knew? Yeah. Now we do. But his attitude was just like, it should happen. Don't let it stop you. Just like Governor Morris. I know. He was really into just returning to his job just like normal. <laughs> I yeah. mean, if I had been mauled by a tiger... I think I at least would want to change, like, positions within the zoo. Maybe. But Governor kept doing what he was doing uh, when he got hurt, which was... uh, Riding carriages? Going to meet one of his lovers. Oh, is that what he was doing when he got his leg caught? Apparently. uh, Elizabeth Plater, wife of another Continental Congressman. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That is scandalous. It is. When his friend John Jay heard about the injury, he joked that he wished his friend had lost something else. Oh, That's not funny. Then Jay wrote to Morris himself and said, I've learned that a certain married woman, after much use of your legs, has occasioned your losing one. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound... I mean, his friends really sound like assholes. Um, I think they they joked with each other. I think they had a very... Frat boy mentality. Yeah, actually, definitely. His relaxed confidence helped make sure that this peg leg did not prevent him from getting down with the ladies. (laughs) He seemed to prefer married women because that let him preserve his relaxed bachelor lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But they had to stimulate him intellectually. Oh, oh, well then. Okay. Yeah. But as good as he was at having affairs, the arena where he really shined was the Constitutional Convention. James Madison is known as the father of the Constitution, but Governor Morris is known as the penman of the Constitution. Mm. Not quite as prestigious sounding, but well earned. Did he write it all out himself? With a feather. <laughs> with a what? With a feather? Oh, with a feather. Um, eventually, yes. But he spoke more times at the convention than anybody else, including Madison. And he used some pretty colorful metaphors. Oh, let's hear it. When the question of how long someone needed to be a citizen to be eligible to be a senator came up, he proposed 14 years. Some members argued that there shouldn't be a requirement at all as long as they're a citizen. But he thought that went too far. He said... He needed requirements. Yeah. He said, we should not be polite at the expense of prudence. It is said that some tribes of Indians carry their hospitality so far as to offer to strangers their wives and daughters. Wow. 
he's saying, I think it needs to be 14 years. Somebody said, ah, that's too many. And then his response goes to what? Mm-hmm. Are you just going to let strangers bang your wife? <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know. I'm having mixed feelings about him. Hmm. He had a way with words. Yeah. Okay. He was super outspoken against slavery. Okay, that's one point for him, of course. Or maybe that counts as at least five points. <laughs> at the convention, he said, The admission of slaves into the representation, when fairly explained, comes to this. That the inhabitant of Georgia and South Carolina, who goes to the coast of Africa, and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity, tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections, and damns them to the most cruel bondages, shall have more votes in a government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than the citizen of Pennsylvania or New Jersey who views with laudable horror so nefarious a practice. Wow, that's good. Yeah, he did not hold back. Yeah, that's that's all the passion. He put all the passion there. All of it. Which is good. Yeah. He understood people, and that might be why he had a dim view of them. He said at the convention that men don't unite for liberty or life. They unite for the protection of property. Hmm. He sounds, I mean, like a realist, but kind of like a pessimist, too. Definitely. And what he said there kind of reminds me of some of the threads that I've read on the Nextdoor app. Just people (laughs) fearing homeless encampments. Oh, I know. Yeah. Something really interesting to me about Morris is that he didn't really see the value in states. He said they were originally nothing more than colonial corporations. Hmm. And he said, we cannot annihilate the states, but we may perhaps take the teeth out of the serpents. My goodness. Yeah, he didn't think of people as Virginians or New Yorkers. He said, this generation will die away and give place to a race of Americans. Hmm. And he took that idea and he sort of transformed the meaning of the Constitution with it when he applied it to the preamble. The draft version, before he wrote it, started out, we, the people of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and on and on and on. Governor Morris turned it into, we, the people of the United States. Mm. He repositioned it from a confederation of states making a compact to a new group of people belonging to one new country. More united. Yeah. It's interesting. He seems very contradictory in some ways. He's he's very hopeful that we can all unite. And then on the other hand, he's like, no one's going to unite for anything except, <laughs> except bullshit, basically. Yeah. Yeah. He had ideals, but he also had uh, this pessimistic reality. And he also had this sort of like breezy way of saying, oh, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. I don't interesting know. guy. He took 23 articles and he turned them into seven more concise articles. And he used his knowledge of history and people to create something that was clearer and resonated more. He knew the final product wasn't perfect. And it's crazy just how much everyone involved in the Constitution at the time agreed that it could be so much better. But he still fought hard for its ratification, knowing that it was the best they could come up with. He wrote, In adopting a Republican form of government, I not only took it as a man does his wife, for better, for worse, but what few men do with their wives, I took it, knowing all its bad qualities. Wow. So I take you as you are. Yeah. Something sweet about that. (laughs) Um, This is shit, but I'll take it. Yeah. I know what I'm getting into. (laughs) Yeah. Now that he had crafted a constitution for the United States, it was time to take his show on the road to France. Mm -hmm. And where was Thomas Jefferson right now? France. (laughs) That takes us to part two. France. (laughs) (laughs) Governor Morris sailed to France for business in 1788, mostly to do work for his mentor, Robert Morris. No Mm -hmm. relation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Morris also worked for Washington in a way, buying him things that he wanted, which was only fair because George Washington had given Morris a bunch of introductory letters, basically letters saying, I'm George Washington and Governor Morris is cool. <laughs> they were as good as gold, Morris said. Wow. <laughs> like a letter of recommendation. Yeah, Probably where definitely. it started. In, in that society, you needed a letter of introduction if you were going to like go to a stranger and it, it was your way in. Yeah, definitely like a letter of recommendation. And I recommend this person <laughs> as a person. <laughs> Personally. <laughs> and Morris did more than just work for Washington and France. He body doubled for him. Oh, because they were similar heights and statures. Yep. He acted as a body model for sculptor Jean-Antoine Houdon. That's fun to say. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I'm saying it the funnest way I can. <laughs> um, he was making this statue of George Washington. And he already had a the life mask or the face ready, but he needed the body. So Governor Morris was the model for the body of that statue. Oh, where does this stand? That is in the rotunda in the capital of Virginia, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it definitely looks like, well, I mean, it looks like Washington, but it does look like his face was just kind of like plopped on the top. <laughs> well. Doesn't it? Maybe. His face does not match the body. There's some major camel toe going on there, too. What? Let me see. Oh, my. <laughs> I right, will put this in the show notes. <laughs> While in France, Morris hobnobbed with the cast of Hamilton, basically. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was there, Angelica, Lafayette. Mm. Angelica! <laughs> Lafayette! Uh, Lafayette was so in love with America that his family spoke English at home, and they made their servant dress as an American Indian. Okay, so there's that. Yeah. Nothing to do with anything, but I couldn't not put that in there. <sighs> yeah. Governor was also friendly with Jefferson's flame, Mariah Cosway. Oh, Mariah. Yeah. France was a small town. She's the only one who knows the truth about Jefferson's wrist. <laughs> it's true. No Jefferson's wrist, Governor's leg. <laughs> These men had their secret body parts. Removed. Or, or broken. broken. <laughs> yeah. Or busted. <laughs> this was the time of the French Revolution, and Morris witnessed it firsthand. The day the Bastille fell, he wrote in his diary, this day's transactions will induce a conviction that all is not perfectly quiet. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a calm and sensible way to say, the sky is falling. Well, then a week later, he was outside waiting for a carriage by the Louvre when a mob went by with the head of a politician on a pike and his naked body dragged behind through Holy the street. Holy shit. Yeah, things escalated quickly. <laughs> and he was just waiting for a carriage? Yep. Oh, wow. Can you imagine? Nope. I I mean, I get surprised and shocked and flabbergasted by far less passing my path. Yeah, well, I mean, France, you know, they were they liked they liked big gestures and extreme things. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, that is horrific. Yeah, he felt bad for the French people, but he thought that they had been so accustomed to monarchical rule that they could never get out from under it without immediately seeking it out again in some way. He said the French want an American constitution without reflecting that they have not American citizens to support it. But that didn't stop him from trying, because writing constitutions was what Governor Morris did best. You mean penning them? He penned, <laughs> from scratch, um, a constitution for France. Wow. It never went anywhere. Oh, no. But he wrote it. He tried. He did. He also felt bad for Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette when they were basically prisoners in the Tuileries. He also ghost wrote a speech for Louis XVI to give, 
and he suggested that the king give bread to the poor people in a grand gesture, because the French seldom concern themselves with the good, but rhapsodize over the beautiful. Louis did not take this advice. Oh, gosh. And look where it got him. No. Do you think it would have helped at that point? I Doubtful, but who knows? But probably not. But maybe, but I don't think so. Okay. Thank you for summing that up. Yes. In 1792, Morris was informed that he was no longer a private citizen in France. He was a private investigator. (laughs) (laughs) Governor Morris, (laughs) P.I. Veronica Mars and Govey Morris. Yeah. Um, His good friend George Washington had appointed him to be the minister to France. So he was now a representative of the United States, officially. And Washington warned Morris that he needed to keep his levity and imprudence in check. A Governor Morris was arrested and questioned several times. His apartment was almost raided when he was hiding aristocrats. But was his head on a stick? No. Well, he, then he got all through is it. well. <laughs> yes. He got through the revolution. He even managed to have a good time. He had quite an affair with Madame de Flahol. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just going at the words, doing my best. You took Flahol. French. I took French in high school and a little bit of college. But then we went to France and you talked to people. So you I knew how to say, excuse me, I'm sorry, (laughs) do you speak English? (laughs) He had quite an affair with this woman, the Madame de Flahot. What's an affair versus quite an affair? Well, let me me tell you. You want (laughs) to know? Yeah. You want to know? I want to know. Tell me like it is. (laughs) All right. So she was a married woman. Like the others. Yes. And she was also having an affair with Talleyrand a clergyman and a big figure in the revolution. So he picked top people to have affairs with. So, wow, she picked top people to have affairs with. Well, so did he. Okay. They both, they had that in common. She was having multiple affairs with top people. Yes. It sounds like. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So who's in control here, really? (laughs) It's a very good question because there was a cat and mouse game kind of going on. Okay. Is that what makes it quite an affair? No. He kept a diary that's not only a great look at the French Revolution, Where but he called it quite an affair. <laughs> it's also a great chronicle of the sex that he had in the Louvre, in his carriage, in a convent all over Paris. <laughs> in his diary, he used aw- fun. Yeah, he used awesome euphemisms like performing the rights, <laughs> doing the needful, the needful, conferring the joy. I'm gonna start tapping you <laughs> in, the the middle of the, in the middle of the night, going, "I know you're sleeping finally." <laughs> But it's time to do the needful. <laughs> that just makes me think of emails I get from Nigerian princes who are like, please do the needful and deposit this amount in my... <laughs> do the needful. Yeah. Okay. But I would like to <laughs> associate many, it with something better. How many Nigerian princes are you getting emails from? I, I don't know. There's a It's a big family, I think. They want quite an affair with you. Um, I think they just want my money. But... <laughs> so they were doing the needful all over the place. They were in the carriage, in Paris, all yes. over. You know how Emerson has a map of the yoga quests she goes on? Yeah, Cosmic Kids Yoga. Yeah, so she she basically does a yoga episode uh-huh. and then gets to check it off her yeah. map and makes progress. I feel like Govey Morris needs kind of a, a needful map. Yeah. A, qu- a needful map quest so we can check out all the places. How great of a walking tour would that be? <laughs> That'd be a fantastic walking, yeah. riding, and... In the carriage. And yeah. tour. <laughs> oh my God, we got to move to Paris and get this started. Yeah, I think if we do go back, yes. when we go back, yes. we need to get some kind of map quest. I completely agree. So that's what made it quite an affair? 
I think so. Locations. Yeah, and just their their interactions that he recorded. Like we get to see a little bit of his understanding of psychology at work when it comes to how he dealt with women and her. What do you mean how he dealt with women? How he manipulated them, you mean? Maybe, yeah. Or how he wooed them? Both. Okay. So she confronted him about his reputation as a ladies' man, and he responded, I never lost my respect for those who consented to make me happy. Oh, so, but the, the second that a woman says to a man, you're quite a ladies' man, aren't you? I mean, they want it. <laughs> wow. No, that's a big statement. I should take that back. I'm not speaking for all women, but in what scenario or rom-com well, th- this is France. have you seen? So the second a woman speaks, we know. <laughs> They're in the carriage <laughs> doing the needful. But um, no, I'm just saying, you know, if you really don't want anything to do with someone because they're like a player, <laughs> yeah, you don't really go up to them and be like, you know, I hear you're a player. <laughs> That's not something I would do. It makes of course, sense. I can't speak for all women, maybe. And, you know, let's not negate that it doesn't matter what a woman says to you. You can't always do the needful with her. No. But I'm just saying that I would yes. never go up to someone and say that if I didn't want to do the needful. Yeah, I think there was manipulation going on on both sides because he wrote about this interaction in his diary and he said, this idea will, I know, dwell on her mind because the combination of tenderness and respect with ardency and vigor go far towards the female idea of perfection in a lover. Interesting. Yeah. He seemed to feel like he had it all figured out. Definitely, yeah. He's like, I'm going to respect her and she's going to sleep with me. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I'll make her cool. seem like That's, she's respected. Yeah. I mean. If that works, that works. I, you know. It worked for them. It did. It worked they all can, over. Yeah, it worked all over <laughs> to the point where they could develop a map. I think there were eventually some broken hearts and she may have wanted to marry him at some point, but. but she was married. Yeah. And, and he wanted to remain a bachelor. And It's true. He wanted to remain a bachelor. At that point. Isn't yeah. that an odd thing back then not to. Want to get married? Um, He was his own guy. He was an odd duck. (laughs) After the revolution and after he came back from France to the United States, he said that Hamilton tells me I must take an active part in our public affairs for the anti-federalists are determined to overthrow our constitution. He became a senator. Wow. When one senator from New York retired. So he got appointed without ever having to be elected. He still had that happy-go-lucky attitude. La-di-da. He wrote to a friend... I busy myself here at the trade of a senator and amuse myself lazily watching the petty intrigues, the insane hopes, the worthless projects of that weak and proud animal they call man. Oh my goodness. Did he think he was above it all? He sounds a little conceited. Let's just I just picture that. him going through life like Captain Jack Sparrow or something. Just kind of <laughs> sauntering. He did. There was an air of, he was, he had that aristocratic air of maybe being a little bit above it all, but also kind of down to earth and and so wait what act are we on the first was constitution we are at toward the end of two two. strap in we're almost done with two number two is france 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 and we're still waiting for two more injuries uh i think you're right okay so governor's friends started urging the 48 year old senator to find a wife and settle down yeah that's what i'm saying but he was stop it with your your needfulness you know, let him be. He was still enjoying the bachelor life and hooking up with a poet named Sarah Morton. Okay. Sarah was, of course, married. 
Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I think everyone was. I don't think he's necessarily just picking married women. Oh, I think is, he is. Oh, you think he is? I think that so it's, he doesn't it's have easier. To, yeah. He doesn't have to settle down with Yeah. Him. Years earlier, Sarah's husband, Perez, had his own affair with Sarah's sister, Fanny. This Oy. affair ended about as badly as any affair could ever end. Sarah's sister, Fanny, had Perez's baby. Oh, And her father confronted Perez, which made the story public. Then Fanny ended up committing suicide by taking an overdose of laudanum. Oh, no, laudanum again? Yeah. She left a note about her guilty innocence. So Sarah the poet, she stayed with her husband through that. And knowing just how terrible affairs could be, still decided to hop on the Governor Morris train. Oh, jeez. Well, she she probably thought, I can't get any worse, so... And maybe she thought, you know, my husband is really shitty at having affairs, but this yeah. governor guy seems like he's got it down. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's going smoothly over here. Yeah, he's know. good at this. <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says... See you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produce the podcast My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. (laughs) Um, Eventually, though, Governor Morris would start to think about marriage. And that brings us to part three, Nancy. Nancy. When Governor Morris was 22 years old, he was working toward becoming a lawyer in New York. But at that same time, 300 miles away at the Tuckahoe Plantation in Virginia, a baby girl named Anne Carey Randolph was born. The Randolph family was the most powerful family in Virginia, and most powerful Virginians were somehow related to them, even Thomas Jefferson. He was part of the Randolph family. He spent much of his childhood at Tuckahoe with his cousins when he wasn't at Shadwell. So they were all related? They were all related. And they just kept being more and more related. Yeah, that's dubious. Yeah. Anne was nicknamed Nancy. So we're going to call her that from now on. Okay. Nancy's mother died when she was 15. Mm. And her father remarried a woman named Gabriella, who was only a year older than Nancy. Oh, that's awkward. It was awkward. 
Nancy is best described by the author Alan Pell Crawford. He wrote Unwise Passions, which is about her life and scandal. Uh, He described her as, By every indication, a fetching girl with a little upturned nose, a gift for self-dramatization, remarkably little in the way of discretion, and oodles of sex appeal. Wow. Yeah. Very peppy. Peppy. Um, Nancy and her stepmother did not get along. Gabriella was trying her best to get Nancy married off just to get her out of the house, but Nancy wasn't ready yet. But she couldn't live with her stepmother, so she went to live with her older sister, Judith, and Judith's husband, Richard Randolph. Yes, more Randolphs. They were cousins, and they were married. Okay, married cousins. Yes. So Nancy moved into Richard Randolph's plantation, Mm -hmm. which was named Bizarre. Was it, in fact, bizarre? It wasn't not bizarre. (laughs) Richard had two brothers living at Bizarre as well. So there was Richard, who was married to Judith. I'm not going to get all this straight. You're going to get this. So there was Richard, who was married to Judith, and Judith and Nancy were sisters. And there were Richard's two brothers, Theodoric and Jack. Okay, so Theodoric, Jack, and Richard are brothers. Yes. And then... Judith and Nancy are sisters. Yes. And who's married? Judith and Richard. Okay. So it's double cousins. Uh, It would be if they had... If Nancy married another brother. It might even be more than that because they were cousins to start with, so I don't even know. (laughs) Gosh. Nancy became an object of desire for both Theodoric and Jack. Okay, the unmarried brothers. Yeah. She and Theodoric actually got engaged. But then Theodoric got very sick and died in 1792. Oh, what did he die from? It's not clear, but he was sick for a long time and he just wasted away. His bones were poking through his flesh and he eventually died. Yeah. Okay. So was she starving him (laughs) or poisoning him? It sounds like she didn't want to marry him to me. That's a good question. But that leaves two brothers at Bazaar, Richard and Jack. And I want to talk about Jack for a minute because he's going to be the villain of this story. Hmm. He also went by the name of John Randolph of Roanoke. Mm -hmm. We talked about him briefly in our Died on the Fourth of July episode. He's the guy who said, it must be euthanasia about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's deaths. You said he was terrible, so you were just going to call him Jack. Yeah, but he liked to be called John Randolph of Roanoke. Here's a picture of Jack. I think he was 38 when that portrait was done. He definitely looks like a villain. He always had a baby face and a high voice. Ew. And we think it's because he got tuberculosis when he was young, and it probably settled in his genital tract, preventing him from ever going through puberty. What? Yeah. That can happen? Apparently. How does tuberculosis go down to your genitalia? That's, I mean, that's just not possible. Is it, I mean, it's Are you a doctor? Like, no, but All this right. doesn't sound like anything a doctor would agree to. <laughs> this, this I have a, some slight medical training. This is not just what some quack said at the time. <laughs> this is what historians have figured out might have happened based on how he died and the fact that he probably contracted tuberculosis when he was young because one of his brothers died of it and trying to explain why he never had to shave his entire life and his flesh was smooth like a baby's. He does look smooth like a baby. He was smooth like a baby. <laughs> he looks very smooth, but his hair is very, you know, Snape. And so he's got a Snape hairdo. And so he looks like a villain. He was dramatic. Clearly. Even though his, his face is like a baby, his hair is like a villain. Hmm. Edgar Allan Poe based one of his thin-legged characters on Jack. <laughs> 
Uh, but even though he had a childlike body... Is it a childlike body, too? His legs were kind of spindly and, like, yeah, below the waist, I guess, was just, like, Noodles? little boy legs. <laughs> even though he had a childlike body, he was a loudmouthed, insulting asshole who got into multiple physical fights in Congress, one time beating a man bloody with a cane... But it's okay. He got fined twenty dollars. Oh my god! He would bring his hunting dog onto the floor of the House of Representatives because he just did whatever he wanted. Mm. And his Virginian constituents didn't mind that he was an asshole because they thought he was fighting for them. So that's Jack. He's at Bazaar with his brother Richard, Judith, Nancy. So they're there along with a whole lot of enslaved people outside the main house. One September night in 1792, something happened that would haunt Nancy for the rest of her life and become one of the greatest scandals in early U.S. history. So this is after her fiancé died? Yes. Okay. And Jack is the only brother left, and he's got some strange... Well, there's Richard, too. Richard's married already. Have we learned nothing? (laughs) Okay. So So Richard might have affairs with his sister-in-law? I'm just very confused. That wouldn't even be the first time this happened in this episode. (laughs) So this didn't happen at Bazaar, but at a plantation called Glentivar, where some cousins the Harrisons lived. Richard, Judith, Nancy, and Jack all went for a visit to Glentivar. When the master of the house, Randolph Harrison, met their carriage, he noticed that Nancy was wearing a heavy winter coat that was buttoned up tight. She said she wasn't feeling well and she went to bed early, upstairs in a room that could only be accessed through another bedroom. I'm so interested right now. The bedroom that Richard and Judith were staying in. Late that night, the Harrisons were awoken by the sound of screaming. Oh, goodness. What exactly happened next is disputed, but here's most of what we know, uh, mostly from the book Unwise Passions. Mary Harrison, Randolph's wife, thought the screaming meant that Nancy was in distress. So she grabbed some laudanum because laudanum cures everything, right? (laughs) She went upstairs to bring it to Nancy, but Richard wouldn't let her in. Richard is... Richard is Judith's husband. Okay, so it sounds like Richard went into Nancy's room and then wouldn't let Mary in with the laudanum. Yeah. Okay, so was he raping her? That's that's not where we're going now. Okay, good. Um, later, Mary heard heavy footsteps coming down the stairs and going outside for a bit, then going back upstairs. Two days later, the Randolphs of Bazaar went back home. They didn't speak of the screaming incident in the night. Why but not? But then the rumor started. The Harrison slaves had discovered the body of a white baby on a pile of shingles between two logs. Oh, my goodness. According to the rumors, the baby was Nancy's and Richard was the father and he had killed it. (gasps) That would make him a murderer and, according to the laws then, also guilty of incest for sleeping with his sister-in-law. Wow. So you're not allowed to sleep with your sister-in-law? No, not in Virginia. Okay, so you can marry your cons- cousin. But that was considered incest, to sleep with your sister-in-law. Yes, yes. Okay. Richard was pissed off about these rumors, and he wanted them to stop. And he decided he would put a notice in the newspaper, daring anyone with evidence of any wrongdoing to come forward and meet him in the courthouse on a specified date. He was basically saying... Say it to my face and arrest me if you have anything. Yeah, bring your evidence. Yeah, because he was a goddamn Randolph. Like, what could they do to him? <laughs> okay. But where's Babyface Jack during all this? He, he comes back. Was he at Bazaar, too? He was there. Okay. Yeah. So he was sleeping in another room. Yeah. Okay. So Richard is basically saying, what are you going to do to me? Well, they arrested him. 
for feloniously murdering a child said to be born of Nancy Randolph. Mm. And they put him in the Cumberland jail. Wow. Richard was put on trial. And it was a huge sensation. He got the best lawyers that money could buy, including John Marshall, the future chief justice of the Supreme Court, and also part of the Randolph clan, and Patrick Henry, that give me liberty or give me death guy. The courtroom was packed with spectators. Everybody who was anybody had to see this for themselves. During the trial, Richard's story was that there was no baby. Nancy just had a hysterical fit because that's what women do, right? One, but he wouldn't let Marianne. No. Why not? Good question. One big thing in Richard's favor was that enslaved people were not allowed to testify in court. Wow. So any talk of finding the corpse was almost hearsay. But witness after witness testified that Richard and his sister-in-law Nancy were quite familiar with each other. One even said they saw them kissing. Hmm. Thomas Jefferson's daughter Patsy even testified that she had noticed that Nancy wasn't feeling well. And she recommended a medicine called gum guaiacum. Not laudanum. No. It was a medicine that she warned Nancy was dangerous and known to produce an abortion. Nancy asked for it anyway. In court, Patsy said this didn't surprise her because she believed Miss Nancy was pregnant. Another witness talked about how Nancy's shape had been altering for a while, but Nancy refused to let anyone see her body. She said that one time she saw Nancy look down at her waist and then cast her eyes up to heaven in silent melancholy. Jesus. But who hasn't done that? (laughs) I've been there. Right. (laughs) But, and she was all zipped up in that coat. Yeah. There were plenty of suspicions raised, but Jack actually vouched for Nancy and said there was no way she could be pregnant without him knowing since he and Nancy and Judith used to lounge in bed together all the time. That's odd. Just cousins in the South laying in bed. I mean, it's hot there. Yeah. I'm sure it's cooler in bed. (laughs) So Jack's not the villain of our story yet, but just wait. Okay. Despite the suspicions raised, John Marshall turned things around with a closing statement that proved what a good lawyer he was. One of his biggest arguments was, if Richard and Nancy were having an affair, wouldn't they have been more discreet about it? This was just a man paying attention to a young woman who'd just been pushed out of her home and who just lost her fiancé. And if Nancy was going to take a medicine to induce an abortion, wouldn't she have taken it at home? So instead of asking if they're guilty, he was sort of asking, like, how dumb do you think they are? Yeah. These are good arguments. Yeah. Richard was found not guilty. Oh, wow. There were cheers in the courtroom. He and Nancy were absolved of guilt in the eyes of the law. But their troubles were just beginning. Mm. Jack wrote in his diary about the carriage ride home, the trial, return, quarrels of the women. (laughs) Yeah, things were... Women and their trinkets and their (laughs) quarrels. Things were always awkward after that between Richard, Nancy, and Judith. Just a little, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, why were they awkward when clearly they're all in on something? Well, Judith may not have been in on anything. She didn't necessarily know what was going on if something happened, but maybe this raised suspicions in her hearing all this she, stuff that during her the trial. Might be having an affair with yeah, and her, her sister, sister might have betrayed. Yeah, a lot of betrayal going on. Okay, yeah, I can see that. Three years later, while Jack was out of town, Richard came down with an inflammatory fever that quickly got worse. Richard did. Yeah. A doctor came to see him and couldn't diagnose him. I do not trust Nancy. Okay. (laughs) Both brothers that she's had some kind of relationship with. You know, things happen. A doctor couldn't diagnose him, but he said he didn't think Richard would survive. 
Richard became so delirious he couldn't recognize anyone. Mm. His fever got worse along with unbearable stomach pain. Judith and Nancy gave him medicine, including one thing that they thought would help him vomit, but he just groaned horribly and died. Oh, wow. Yeah, he left his wife and sister-in-law behind with his two children, St. George, who was five years old and Mm. deaf and mute. Oh my goodness. And the infant Tudor. There's an infant named Tudor. Yeah. Okay. He'll come back. Who will come back? Tudor in the story. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you meant Richard as a ghost. <laughs> no, that'd be something. Um, it's like back to back to episode one. No. By the time that Jack found out about this and he returned home, it was too late. Richard had already been buried next to their brother, Theodoric. Jack was gutted and furious. Nancy's life at Bazaar just got more difficult after that. She was less a sister to Judith than a maid. And she rebelled by refusing to do the chores that her sister demanded. It's like a Cinderella situation. Yeah. She wasn't allowed to drink wine with other adults. She was discouraged from talking. Wow. Six years after Richard's death, Jack ordered Nancy to leave Bazaar. He said Nancy had been taking as many liberties there as she would in a tavern. Oh my God. So she was drinking all their booze? Um, it's, uh, we don't know for sure. It's possible he was referring to an alleged relationship um, between Nancy and an enslaved carpenter, Billy Ellis. Okay. We just don't know. Nancy was 31 years old. Not quite a spinster in those times, but approaching it. And her reputation followed her wherever she went after that. She eventually ended up in New York. And when she got there, she wrote to one of the only people she knew in the state who might be able to help her someone who had visited her family at Tuckahoe when she was just 13 and might have employment to offer. It just so happened that that same man was looking for a good housekeeper for his New York mansion. Hmm. Could it be Govey? That man was Governor Morris. <sighs> Interesting. Their paths crossed. Yes. Um, so Nancy moved to Morsenia and became Governor Morris's housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Then the 57-year-old Morris took a liking to the 35-year-old Randolph, and he was thinking of making her more than just his housekeeper. But first he had to know the truth about her past before he took that step. So he gave her some laudanum. (laughs) So he wrote to John Marshall, who was the current chief justice of the Supreme Court. Wow. Because he'd represented Richard when he was on trial. Governor Morris asked John Marshall, hey, is she innocent? (laughs) Um, Tell me the truth about this woman. Marshall replied that the rumors were probably invented by the malignant. And he said that Nancy was allowed to stay at Bazaar for several years after the trial, which would be strange if she were guilty of killing her baby and all this other stuff. And that was good enough for Morris. Okay. On Christmas Day in 1809, Governor Morris had a big Christmas party, and he made a surprise announcement to everyone. It wasn't just a Christmas party they were at. It was a proposal? It was a wedding. Oh, my God. He married Nancy right there in her servant dress. Oh, all right. There's some interesting costumes in this, in this story. <laughs> I, I'm imagining this as like a French maid outfit. And Me I'm, too. I don't think that's accurate because she said that her dress had patches on the sleeves. And in my mind, there's no sleeves. But I don't know. Picture in it how mind, you will. there's no sleeves to this, ma- this French maid outfit. <laughs> Most French maid outfits have sleeves. Well, like puffy, like puffy things. But they unless don't. Unless you're thinking of the stripper variety. Most French maid outfits have sleeves, I believe. Um. I don't know how you clean your house in France. <laughs> but that's why. Why not let her get a wedding dress or something? I don't know. Why not? Maybe he wanted put to, something to surprise on. her and like didn't want to tip her off. Maybe it was a surprise to her, too. 
I don't know. Here, let me marry you in your in your house dress. Yeah. That's that's I can't grubby. imagine that made her feel special, but she did feel special. Oh, that's good. Someone accepted her finally, who wasn't dying. Yeah, and his inner circle, they seemed to adore Nancy, except for his relatives that felt that their inheritance was threatened. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. One of his nieces wrote to Governor that she thought he was making a mistake. He wrote back, I received your letter, my dear child, and perceive in it two charges, that I have committed a folly in marriage and have acted undutifully in not consulting you. I can only say to you that I have not yet found cause to repent, and to the second, that I hope you will pardon me for violating an obligation of which I was not apprised. What obligation was he not apprised of? Of giving a shit what his niece thought. Oh, I like that. Yeah. He went on to say, if I had married a rich woman of 70, the world might think it wiser than to take one half that age without a farthing. And if the world were to live with my wife, I should certainly have consulted its tastes. <laughs> As that happens not to be the case, I thought I might, without offending others, endeavor to suit myself and look rather into the head and heart than into the pocketbook. You know what? I think any time I need to write a letter to someone saying, fuck off, yeah. <laughs> I think we need to quote him. Uh, I <laughs> think so fantastic. too. That was fantastic. That's a great way of saying it's realize, none of your damn business. Yeah. I didn't realize I was obligated to consult you. Yeah. But yeah, I'm going to use that line. I love it. I love it too. Nancy was fully embraced by high society once again. Sheen Governor even visited James and Dolly Madison in the White House. Whether Madison opened up to them and let his funny flag fly, I don't know. <laughs> he probably did. Maybe. By all accounts, Governor and Anne Carey Randolph Morris were extremely happy. In 1812, Nancy got pregnant, and in February 1813, she gave birth to a son, Governor Morris II. The family was complete, and everyone was happy. Now, this story has a lot of death and tragedy, and I just want to let you know right now, Governor Morris II lives a long, happy, productive life. So whatever else happens, this kid is going to be okay. You're scaring me. No, I just, I, I introduced a baby to a happy story. Okay. And I know that whenever I read these stories, um, I'm scared. You know? <laughs> You're scared for the little one? Yeah, I think if they make it through childhood, then they're just going to grow up to be alcoholics and it's going to be terrible. <laughs> but this kid's okay. All right. Thanks for the heads up. Yeah. There's a cute little story of one little uh, governor. That's what they called him. What? Governor. Yeah. So can we call him Junior? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some people did, I think. Okay. Because Govey, I can't do Governor and Govey and then Governor. GovGov. Gov. Hey, GovGov. <laughs> <laughs> There's a story that when he was sleeping in the same bed with his parents, Nancy gave him a cup of milk. And when he was done, he grabbed his mom and dad by their nightcaps and pulled them close to him saying, come, Papa, come, Mama. And with one of his dear little hands held by each parent, he fell into a sweet sleep. Oh, that sounds like our daughter. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I feel like if I told you that before I told you he was going to live, you'd have been anxious the whole time. Thank you. But isn't that what you want me to be during this? You want me to be anxious and um, unknowing? I want you to enjoy some sweet spots. Thank you for yeah. that sweet spot of knowing this child will live. <laughs> at this point in their lives, all was well at Morrisania. But what happened in Virginia did not stay in Virginia. Mm. I'm really curious about how Jack is going to come into this with his baby legs. We're almost there. Okay. In March 1813, Bizarre burned down. Everyone survived, but their already bad financial situation just got worse. Bizarre burned down? Yeah. When was it named? It was named Bizarre from the beginning, and nobody knows exactly why. They think maybe it came from the French word Bizarre, which at one time meant valorous. 
Some people said it was named Bazaar after a flower, but horticulturists have no idea what flower that ever was. So we don't really know why it was called Bazaar. I feel like the, the name stained, you know, the family a little bit. Yeah, you, you want to think before you name your plantation. Bazaar. Yeah. Judith did everything uh, back at Bazaar she could to give her youngest son, Tudor, a proper education. And he ended up going to Harvard. Ooh la la. Yeah, he was, according to his Uncle Jack, the pride, the sole hope of our family. His mother idolized him. While he was at Harvard, Tudor wrote to his Aunt Nancy a couple of times asking for money, and she gave it to him. Then he asked if he could come visit them at Morsenia. When he showed up, he was deathly ill and put in bed right away. Is he going to be okay? You told me Junior's going to be okay. You get one. You don't. I tell you one ahead of time. I'm not going to tell you. It's like Sophie's choice. I don't think. No, I no. It's fine. So they're going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. Governor Morris wrote to Jack that the boy was deeply, perhaps mortally diseased, and he had violent bleeding from the lungs. So Judith and Jack came from Virginia up did, to Morsania. Does this family have bad genes or something? Like, what is happening to Well, all they these? were interbreeding a lot, so maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe. Uh, Judith and Jack came up to Morsania to see Tudor. It would be the first time that Judith would see her sister since she left Bazaar. And how old was Tudor now? Tudor was in college, so he was a teenager. Oh, he's not a little kid anymore. No, he's at Harvard. So, Oh, that's right. He's at Harvard and bleeding from his lungs. Yes. The sisters seemed to be getting along okay, even with Jack. Uh, the doctor said that Tudor was actually getting better and he could travel. So Jack gave his blessing for Judith and Tudor to stay at Morsania for as long as they needed. Uh, it seemed like maybe he was willing to let the pass go. But as he left, he gave Nancy a hug and whispered to her, Remember the past. Oh, that's foreboding. Yeah. So is he killing everybody? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. How is Jack involved in this? <laughs> Soon after this, Jack got into an injury, and everyone went to visit him. What injury? Is uh, this the, f- the third injury? No. He fell down some stairs. Okay. In New York. Watch where you're going. <laughs> At one point, teenage Tudor and Jack were left alone, and they started talking about Nancy. According to Jack, Tudor started complaining about her, the woman who'd been taking care of him. He said that she was cold and phony, and then he said that he had seen his aunt's love letters to the enslaved carpenter Billy Ellis back at Bazaar when he was young. Hmm. Those damn Harvard kids. <laughs> so Nancy and Billy Ellis. Yeah. Their letters. Maybe. Okay. Jack might not have been processing things quite right at this time. He may have been pretty heavily addicted to opium. Mm-hmm. He'd had a lot of injuries that he was treating including one from a horse stepping on his foot and reducing his toes to a jelly. Well, that's delicious. Yeah, that's our third bodily injury of the episode. Oh. That, okay, the jelly thing, it might sound gross, but Jack really just kind of liked to use that phrase. Jelly? Yeah, another time he threatened to beat a man to a jelly. Okay. So I don't know how gelatinous his toes really were, and he either really liked or really hated jelly. (laughs) Maybe it's just so shocking to hear anything of matter turn into a jelly. I know. It's gross. And it's a, yeah. yeah. It's the shock factor he's looking for. Yes. I think he, he has some issues, but we'll see. Oh, for sure. But when do we get to those? We're almost there. Jack then met up with one of Governor Morris's nephews, this guy named David Ogden. And they got to talking and exchanging even more information, and eventually it evolved into a conspiracy that Nancy was most definitely a murderer who only married Morris so she could kill him and take his money for herself. 
Gosh. Jack had to warn Governor Morris, and he had to finally stop this murderous vixen. Well, I mean, there is death wherever she goes. Yeah, but there's death everywhere at this. I mean, you know, people I mean, people die. All the brothers. Jack's still alive. But that's because he might be a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack tried to get a private meeting with Governor, but Nancy said he was too sick to meet him. Oh, he's sick now? Yeah. I'm telling you, she's like Typhoid Mary. You know. Somebody look up Typhoid Mary and please tell me. We can Google it later after we look up Big Dick Energy. I'm not going to look up Big Dick Energy. If you, you it, know put what's the quotes in the up. right places. <laughs> no, I'm not going to You got to have that last word in I there. I do not need that in my brain All right. <laughs> right now. Maybe later. Okay. So instead of having a private meeting with Governor, Jack wrote a letter to Nancy. But he addressed it so that Governor Morris would read it first. I see. I'll read you some of Jack's letter. Okay. Madam, when at my departure from Morsania in your sister's presence, I bade you remember the past. I was not apprised of the whole extent of your guilty machinations. Jeez. My object was to let you know that the eye of man, as well as that of God, of whom you seek not, was upon you. To impress upon your mind some sense of duty towards your husband and if possible, to rouse some dormant spark of virtue, if haply any such should slumber in your bosom. So this is this is just a woman who has some baggage with her family. Yeah. Her family does not like her. This part of her family certainly doesn't. She had some other brothers that don't fit into the story that were supporting her. Okay. Governor Morris loved her. Right. And Jack went on, The child, you told, was begotten by my brother Theodoric who died at Bazaar of a long decline the preceding February. You knew long before his death, nearly a year, he was reduced to a mere skeleton, that he was unable to walk, and that his bones had worked through his skin. Such was the inviting object whose bed, agreeably to your own account, you sought. So he's claiming that she slept with Thoric? No, he's saying that at the time, she privately confided that it wasn't Richard's, it was Theodoric's, my fiancé. I didn't sleep with Richard. I didn't sleep with my sister's husband. But he doesn't seem to buy that. I see. Okay. He said that after Richard's death, Judith endured you as well as she could, and you poured on. But your intimacy with one of the slaves, your dear Billy Ellis, thus commenced your epistles to this Othello, attracted notice. You could no longer stay at Bazaar. What do I see? A vampire that after sucking the best blood of my race has flitted off to the north, and struck her harpy fangs into an infirm old man. To what condition have you reduced him? Have you made him a prisoner in his own house, that there may be a witness of your lewd amours? Or have you driven away his friends and old domestics, that there may be no witness of his death? I don't know Nancy's role in all this, but I'd be just ripping these letters up. Yeah. I'm not even going to read this. This is like cyberbullying. Yeah. And then he says, I have done. Before this reaches your eye, It will have been perused by him to whom, next to my brother, you are most deeply indebted, and whom, next to him, you have most deeply wronged. If he be not both blind and deaf, he must sooner or later unmask you, unless he, too, dies of cramps in his stomach. You understand me. If I were persuaded that his life is safe in your custody, I might forbear from making this communication to him. Repent before it is too late. May I hear of that repentance and never see you more." John Randolph of Roanoke. And that's Jack. That's Jack. Okay. And what does he get out of this? 
I like just to bully her. His opium riddled mind thinks that he's doing the right thing. And he blames her for his brother's death, at least for Richard's death. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to take revenge. And this isn't just a private letter he sent Governor Morris. He's telling this to everybody. Yeah. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Nancy was not about to let Jack mess with her new life or her son's. So she wrote back a strong defense of his accusations, and she made sure to send 20 copies to his political opponents. Oh, wow. In the letter, she admitted that a baby had been born that night. Wow. But it was stillborn. No murder had taken place. Mm. And she said it was not Richard's, but indeed Theodoric's child. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if I believe this because she says she slept with him just days before he died. And so uh, maybe it was his last request or uh, maybe it mm. killed him. Oh, God. Uh, the timing is suspicious based on his was physical so condition at this yeah. time. Yeah. So maybe it was Richard's. I, I don't know. And that seems interesting. I don't know. Because it seems like, okay, I'll admit to this part. But I'm, it's that lying through omission situation. Yeah. I'll read you some of her letter and you can see what a badass Anne Carey Randolph Morris was. <laughs> In the letter, she asked Jack, if he believed the accusations he was making, why did you permit your nephew to be fed from my bounty and nursed by my care during nearly three months? Could you suppose him safe in the power of a wretch who had murdered his father? Does it consist with the dignified pride of your family you affect to have him, whom you announce as your heir and destined to support your name, dependent on the charity of a Negro's concubine? Oh my goodness. Yeah. She recounted how she loved Theodoric, but her father wouldn't let her marry him because he was not set to inherit any money. And she says, Under these circumstances, I was left at Bazaar, a girl, not yet 17, with the man she loved. I was betrothed to him and considered him as my husband in the presence of God, whose name you presume to invoke on occasions the most trivial and for purposes the most malevolent. We should have married if death had not snatched him away a few days after the scene which began the history of my sorrows. Ooh, so a few days after they slept together. Yeah. This, sir, passed in a remote county of Virginia more than 20 years ago. You have revived this scandalous tale in the most populous city in the United States. For what? To repay my kindness to your nephew by tearing me from the arms of my husband and blasting the prospects of my child? Poor innocent babe now playing at my feet, unconscious of his mother's wrongs. Then she gets to the subject of Tudor. She didn't want to drag her nephew into this, but Jack started it. She said he should ask Tudor, why did you stay in that house? Why did you accept her kindness? Why did you pocket her money? Are you yet to learn what is due to the rights of hospitality? Or have you, at the early age of 19, been taught to combine profound hypocrisy with deadly hate and assume the mask of love that you more surely plant the assassin's dagger. Where did you learn these horrible lessons? This last, sir, would have been a dangerous question on your part. He might have replied and may yet reply, Uncle, I learned this from you. Ooh, burn. Yeah, then she got to Governor. She said, You speak of him as an infirm old man into which I have struck the fangs of a harpy after having acted in your family the part of a vampire. I loved my husband before he made me his wife. I love him still more now that he has made me the mother of one of the finest boys I ever saw. Now that his kindness soothes the anguish, which I cannot but feel from your unmanly attack. And she brought up his reference to Othello. She yeah, said, I want to hear this. I observe, sir, in the course of your letter, an allusion to one of Shakespeare's best tragedies. I trust you are by this time convinced that you have clumsily performed the part of honest Iago. Happily for my life and for my husband's peace, you did not find him a headlong rash Othello, 
For a full and proper description of what you have written and spoken on this occasion, I refer you to the same admirable author. He will tell you it is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. How many days do you think it took her to write this? I feel like I try to write a text (laughs) explaining how I feel about something, and it's just takes me forever to write three sentences yeah i don't know i don't know i maybe just poured right out oh my gosh do you think um govy helped her write this i don't know i mean you know me i'd be like help me write this text yeah no totally <laughs> and then i'd be like don't say that to your mom <laughs> i'm like no i'm gonna say it <laughs> you're like no what have you done i think she probably was capable of doing this herself but maybe he helped. Well, I know she was capable of it, but I mean, it sounds dramatic. Like she might've wanted his help and input. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. It's nice to imagine them collaborating on it, but I also kind of think that maybe she would want to do this on her own. You know her so well. I do. Despite Jack's crazed crusade against Nancy, he was reelected to Congress because the people who supported him didn't really care how he treated women. It sounds a lot like today. Yeah. People said that Governor Morris should sue Jack for slander for writing this, but Governor said he didn't want his money and he didn't want to spread his filthy tales any further. He always stood by Nancy saying, she never deceived me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so now we're going to move to part four. Part four is Governor's legacy and why he's not remembered fondly today. So before we get to his death, uh, you'd think that the guy who wrote the words, we the people, and who had such a huge role in shaping our constitution would be a little bit more of a household name, right? Right. Yeah. I'm not sure at what point his name got switched from positive to negative. It didn't so much get switched from positive to negative. It just kind of got not mentioned. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one is the winners write the history books. Governor Morris, like John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, was a Federalist. And a lot of those guys, until fairly recently, were kind of kept in the shadows of glory. And part of that is because the Federalist Party was crushed after the War of 1812. Their party just went extinct. And the presidency was held for 24 straight years by Democratic Republicans and BFFs from Virginia, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. And they had no interest in making Governor Morris a hero. And he died in 1816, which was right in the middle of their reign. But isn't that, I mean, he wrote... The words we the people. I mean, does isn't that for history as opposed to just a certain party, you know? Yes, but the it, it winners are the, the ones... country in general. Yeah, and I don't think that they took that away from him. But when they're writing the history books, when they're talking about who to celebrate, the Constitution is James Madison's. The Declaration mm-hmm. of Independence is Thomas Jefferson's. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the guys that they're writing about and celebrating. Governor Morris wasn't around to defend his own legacy. And he was just kind of written out a bit. Mm, That sucks. Yeah. Number two, and this is another reason that he didn't endear himself to those Democratic Republicans. He was very Mm anti-slavery. He came from the aristocracy of New York, and he probably did own some people in his younger days. But he actually did more to speak out against it and end it where he could than folks like John Adams, who never owned slaves. Mm -hmm. So if you're Thomas Jefferson... You don't want to celebrate that kind of thinking because it doesn't make you look good or your party or the South in general. Right. Number three, he sort of wanted to break up the country that he helped found. I thought he wanted to unite everybody. Well, (laughs) everybody's young wants. (laughs) Um, So it started with John Adams and the so-called midnight appointments. During Adams's lame duck period, 
after Jefferson was elected and before his inauguration, John Adams created a bunch of new judge positions for life, which he was allowed to do under the Constitution. And then Thomas Jefferson came in and was like, I'm just going to repeal that law. So these judges appointed for life apparently were unappointed. Now, Morris was part of the Constitutional Convention where they decided that it was absolutely necessary for judges to serve for life. There was the idea that judges would be independent and a vital check on the other branches of government. If that went away, well then, here comes the heads on pikes. When Jefferson repealed those midnight appointments, Morris wrote to a friend that we have here as yet nothing of importance except destroying the Constitution. From then on, he decided the Constitution that he helped create was dead and that there was no obligation to follow its rules. So when the War of 1812 came and he didn't think that New York's interests were being considered, he thought it was time to leave the Union. Hmm. That was the plan in 1814 when some New England states and New York got together in what was called the Hartford Convention to discuss a possible plan to secede from the United States and form their own country. We need some of that now. Well, that's what started the Civil War. (laughs) Maybe we need now. Maybe we can peacefully retreat. (laughs) That's what they thought. Uh, Governor Morris was all for it. But one word about this Hartford Convention got out. It was the final nail in the coffin of the Federalist Party. And it was one more reason not to honor the memory of Governor Morris. Mm. So you've got that. And you've also got his philandering ways. And maybe some people just didn't think that made for a good example. Uh, Those are the people that were writing fake stories about young George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. (laughs) Did did Govey care about his legacy? I mean, was this something that was important to him as a person? Not as much as many other founders. He didn't have the same ambition or uh, seeking out of glory Mm -hmm. that people like Hamilton or John Adams even had. Yeah, it it didn't matter as much to him. He cared about his family and he cared about his party and he, Mm -hmm. you know, he cared about um, the rights of the people, but he he didn't care that much about his legacy like others did. Yeah. Morality and history got tied up together, and Morris's like sex-positive stance wasn't so easy to hide. His marriage to Nancy Randolph probably didn't help in that department either. Mm-hmm. So if you're writing history for kids, you're probably not going to make him a big figure in it. Right. One other possible reason that he's not more celebrated might be the circumstances of his death. Oh, no. He didn't exactly die in a blaze of glory. Oh, goodness. That brings us to our final part. Asphyxiation during needfulness? (laughs) (laughs) No, no asphyxiation. Okay. Part five, the ending. Governor Morris's death is not the glorious, poetic, divine intervention type of death that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe got. It wasn't on the fourth, first of all. It wasn't on the fourth, and it's maybe the exact opposite. Oh, no. I'm scared. Okay. Do you remember earlier this year when I thought I had a zit on my nose? I don't remember anything from earlier this year, but I actually do remember that. Yeah, I tried... I tried to pop it. You have this strange need to pop every zit, especially before it's ready. And I warn you every time. Can we just say I was right about the situation? You were not wrong. (laughs) I was right. The problem with this was that maybe it wasn't actually a zit and it ended up like red and puffy and it actually got infected and I needed antibiotics. Yeah, it was a really big problem on your nose. Now, I've had pimples before and I was able to take care of them easily. No problem. So I thought... I could take care of this one, and I was wrong. 
For those of you still listening, <laughs> that is pretty similar to what happened to Governor Morris, except it wasn't a pimple on his nose that he was trying to pop. Oh, no. It was a blockage in his urethra oh. that he was trying to clear up himself. Oh, gosh. Like a bladder infection or just like an actual infection in his urethra? Uh, a blockage. It didn't go well, and it resulted in our fourth and final severe bodily injury of the episode. Oh, no. So his I, big dick? Energy. I've read this story a while ago, and it was so bizarre that I wondered, is this, is this real? And it is. Instead of me telling you, I'm going to read the primary source where this information comes from. It's a letter written from a good friend of Morris's, Rufus King, to another friend. November 5th, 1816. We are like to lose if we have not already lost one of our distinguished citizens. Mr. Governor Morris was not expected to live through yesterday. He has been long subject to a stricture in the urinary passage, and having unskillfully forced a piece of whalebone through the canal, so lacerated the parts as to create a very high degree of inflammation. Wait, can we just pause, please? What? What? You have questions? <laughs> I need to rewind. Okay. Wait a minute. So he... They found a whalebone, or he put a whalebone up his urethra to remove the blockage? Okay, so having unskillfully forced a piece of whalebone th oh. through the canal, so lacerated the parts <gasps> as to create a very high degree of inflammation, oh. which has been followed by a mortification that I am told will prove fatal. So he cut up his... Some years ago... He cut ago, himself up down there with a whalebone? Some years ago, he performed the same operation with a flexible piece of hickory. The success on this occasion probably emboldened him to repeat the experiment that is now to prove fatal. So he's done this before with hickory. Yeah, he had a blockage in his urethra that was probably related to his gout, and he tried to clear it by forcing a piece of whalebone, which we think probably came from one of Nancy's corsets. Oh he my gosh. Yeah, he tried to force a piece of whalebone up into his... Pee hole, and it killed him. Because, I mean, it created a wound that killed yes. him. Yes, yes. Oh, my gosh. Did it get infected? And then... Yeah, I mean, oh. his, his illness might have killed him pretty soon anyway, but he died as a result of a pretty horrifying self-surgery. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Poor guy. And so they didn't want to write about that in the history books either? No, he was he was 65 years old. That's young. Newspapers at the time said he died of a short but distressing illness. Okay, so they didn't even go into detail. No, 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 no. And they probably didn't have this information. This was in a Got private it. letter. Okay. Um, that probably everybody was talking about, but it wasn't published. That's very disturbing. Yeah. At a certain point... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to look up to the gods and heavens with melancholy. <laughs> At a certain point, I have to wonder about these injuries and his personality. Okay, on one hand, I think it's great that he had such a la-di-da reaction to things that might turn other people into bitter assholes. <laughs> but on the other hand, I have to wonder if going through life with such a la-di-da, life-is-beautiful attitude might be the problem. It might have led him to stick whalebone up his urethra. Yeah, like if those rose-tinted glasses he's wearing are maybe blurring his vision causing him to knock over a pot of boiling water or fall out of his carriage or think, give me that whalebone, I got this. I mean, I don't know. If you've ever had like a terrible thing going on with your body and you just needed it taken care of, I can I can see it happen. I can see that. But I, I can't ever imagine sticking something there. No, me neither. Yeah. But, you know, run it by somebody. 
you know, hey, Nancy, I'm thinking about sticking this up my pee hole because I have some kind of infection or blockage. She'd say, don't we know? Let's Maybe think he was just like, over. hey, can, can I see your corset for a minute? Yeah, I just wanna... like run that by her. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like if he would have sought advice, like where were his doctors? Where was Benjamin Rush? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Um, so I think having a relaxed confidence is great, but maybe it can be dangerous and require supervision sometimes. Maybe it can lead to whale bones up your urethra. Just a thought, yeah. Mm, so It's a shame. Yeah. So even though Morris did everything he could to make sure that his family would be taken care of, his shitty nephew, David Ogden, had taken so much advantage of Governor that it left Nancy with crippling debt. Oh, God. This woman who grew up an aristocrat and wanted for nothing, then found herself poor and then worked her way back up, she was once again poor. But she fought like hell to give her son the best life possible. She worked to sue everybody who owed them money and wasn't paying it back. She pinched pennies to turn their land into a working farm. The struggles that she went through probably prepared her for the struggles of working for her son, and she ended up saving their home and making sure that Governor Morris II had the education he needed to succeed. She was a survivor, man. Yeah. A fighter. Yeah. He went on to become a successful railroad executive. And their great-grandson, Governor Morris IV, became a successful pulp novelist in Hollywood in the 1920s and had some of his stories turned into movies. Oh, cool. Nancy made sure that her husband's papers were preserved and that his diaries were published. And she protected his legacy as best she could against those who might not want it preserved. I don't know how successful she was at that, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that Governor Morris might be due for a resurgence. We'll see. <laughs> right. Today, she and Governor Morris are buried at St. Anne's Episcopal Church in the Bronx. It's the last remaining building of the Morrisania estate. It's a church that was built by Governor Morris II in honor of his mother. Wow. Yeah. Now, oh, my goodness. What a... Talk about a legacy. Yeah. Um, These people had some major life occurrences. Yeah. Now, most people don't know anything about Governor Morris, and I think that we should learn about him and celebrate him. Yeah, I had no idea. We should teach kids about Governor Morris with his deflashed arm and his peg leg and his sex-positive stance on morality. (laughs) I don't think kids need fairy tale stories about George Washington chopping down a cherry tree. What they need is a pirate fuck machine like Governor Morris, (laughs) one who's good at math and writing constitutions and building canals and that knows that people should not be owned. Mm-hmm. The world needs more Governor Morris. Yeah. I mean, when you first said his name, I had no idea who he was. And now you know and way more I than know. you ever wanted. Now I know quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> quite a bit. Wow. Next week is our season finale, and we've got a doozy of death, destruction, and romance for you. Oh, some more, huh? There's yeah. always there's always death, destruction, and romance. I'm it's, liking this theme. It's how I roll. <laughs> um, then we're going to take a break while I research, and we record some stuff just for our patrons. Yay, patrons. So if you like the podcast and you want to support it, please tell your friends and, and tell your acquaintances, too. And if you want more. <laughs> and, you know, people at the bus stop. Strangers, why not? Yeah. Consider <laughs> becoming a Patreon supporter where you'll get bonus content, a whole extra monthly podcast series with our six-year-old daughter coming soon, uh, and more. I want to give a quick shout out to our patrons, uh, Katrin, who's found comfort in researching presidential history to put the present in context. And to Sarah, who gets the same warm fuzzies from John Quincy Adams that I do. (laughs) Yay, Katrin and Sarah. And to Maria, who's a generous soul who deserves some rest after a big move. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening and for being our patrons. It means the world to us. So until next week, follow your heart, 
Remember that life is beautiful, but people can be terrible. Don't let your relatives ruin you. And stay away from whale bones. And thank you for plotting. (laughs) Thank you. This doesn't sound like anything a doctor would agree to.